Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. We are continuing our series this morning on doctrines that define, and uh, you know that we live in a part of the country where the majority of people, the vast majority of people, profess to believe in God and even in Jesus Christ. In fact, in a survey by Pew Research with people in Tennessee, so this is just uh, the state of Tennessee, when asked about their belief in God, 78% of the residents of Tennessee said that they are absolutely certain about their belief in God. Another 13% said that they were fairly certain. So if we can do a little math this morning, that means that 91% of the people in our state have a strong belief in God, which is an extremely high number. When asked about their religious affiliation, 81% of people in the state of Tennessee regard themselves as Christians. So eight out of 10 people in our state believe themselves to be Christian. That is, they are a follower of Christ and claim to know who Christ is. After all, that's the definition of a Christian, right? Someone who knows Christ and follows him. Now, with those staggering numbers, you would think that our morality and church attendance would also be sky high, but you know that is simply not the case. So how is it that in our state, there is this huge majority of people who profess to be Christians, who profess to know Jesus Christ, and yet so many do not actually follow him? Why is there such a gap? between professing Christians and practicing Christians. This past Wednesday night in our Bible study, we were looking at the story of Paul and Silas as they were in prison. Perhaps you remember that story. They had been arrested for proclaiming the gospel. They were in prison. They were singing hymns and praying to God. And then a great earthquake occurs, and all the prison doors are open, but none of the men escape. And so when the jailer figures out that the prison doors are open, he's about to kill himself because he knows that is going to be what happens if the prisoners escape. But instead, Paul and Silas cry out that all are still there. And then the jailer asks this significant question. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And then Paul and Silas answer him by saying, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now, surely we understand that to believe in someone, in this case, Jesus, we have to know who that person is. I mean, merely saying, I believe in Jesus, which so many in our culture do, as we've already seen by those statistics. But merely saying, I believe in Jesus, is not a magic formula that assures that you will go to heaven when you die. Surely we understand that salvation and following Christ is not just some mantra mantra that we say. And instead, it must be a part of our lives. It must be a commitment for our lives. Therefore, many 
who say they believe in Jesus do not possess saving faith, either because they do not know who Jesus is or because they are not committed to him or perhaps both. So before you and I can commit our life and eternity to Jesus, we have to know who he is, which is why a right understanding of the person of Christ is essential for salvation, which means it certainly does rise to the level of a doctrine that defines. Was Jesus merely a good teacher? Was Jesus merely a wonderful example? Was he merely just a charismatic preacher that could hold the attention of an audience? Was he merely a prophet in the line of so many others, perhaps even like Muhammad and Buddha? Maybe Jesus didn't even really exist. Maybe he was just a figment of the imagination, a myth made up by first century disciples and still deceiving people even to our own day. My point is there are many views of Jesus and not all of them are right. And we must hold the right view of Jesus if we are going to be an Orthodox Christian. There was another great question, this time from the lips of Jesus. He asked his disciples on one occasion, who do people say that I am? And his disciples answered, well, some say that you are Elijah, that it's come back. Others say that you are John the Baptist or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then Jesus asked this question, but who do you say that I am? And that's the question before us this morning. Who is Jesus? And not everyone's opinion is equally valid. Not everyone's opinion is correct. There is a right answer, and that means that all of the other answers are, in fact, wrong. And the right answer is that Jesus is truly God and truly man. You say, well, how is that possible? And that's our title this morning. Is it possible? Can Jesus be both truly God and truly man? And if you were with us last week, you already know the answer to that. Because last week we looked at the statement where, where God says that there is nothing impossible with God. So yes, Jesus can be truly God and truly man. We are going to start in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. And I'm going to encourage you, no, I'm going to ask you to keep your Bibles open. Because we're going to go to another text here in a few moments. Because there's simply not an individual text in the Bible that speaks to both the humanity of Jesus and the deity of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We are going to start this morning with the humanity of Jesus, recognizing that he was a living, breathing, physical man in first century Israel. He is not a myth. He was and is a man 
whom we saw last week was born of the Virgin Mary in first century Israel. Now, we do not question the historicity of prominent religious individuals like Muhammad or Buddha. Though we do not hold them in high regard as those who follow them do, we do not question the fact that they were actually men who lived on this earth. And yet there is uh, many who hold that Jesus did not live. There are some who hold that Jesus was not a man, in spite of the fact that there is ample evidence, both within and without the Bible, to come to the same conclusion that Jesus did, in fact, exist. So much so that I'm not going to take the time this morning to try to, try to prove that to you. If you do not believe that Jesus was a physical man, you are simply not looking at the evidence and you are not being honest. I could also take the time today to talk about the physical aspects of Jesus. And we would see that he was just like every other man. He was born a baby. He continued to grow in stature and in wisdom and in favor with God and man. There were times that he was weary and tired. There were times when he was hungry and thirsty, just like everybody else. He had a mind that allowed him to reason and to discuss, just like all of us have. That, of course, leads to questions about when he became conscious of who, in fact, he is, a question that we will not answer today. He had emotions. He marveled. He wept. He was sorrowful. He was troubled. And he enjoyed times of intimacy and fellowship with those he was close to. And I've rushed through all of that because I don't want to spend our time there this morning. I'm going to assume, and I know that's a scary thing to do sometimes, but I'm going to assume that you're here this morning or listening or watching online because you believe that Jesus did in fact exist. So that assumption is what we are going to start with. What I want to spend our time with when it talks about the humanity of Jesus is why this is important. And that's why I've selected the two verses that we've already read this morning. I want you to see three reasons in these two verses why the humanity of Jesus is very important. First of all, we notice that he is our high priest before God. If you know your Old Testament, you know that priests played a prominent role in Israel. They were the religious leaders. They sacrificed animals on behalf of the people's sins. And they interceded before God on behalf of the people. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those prophecies. He is the fulfillment of all of those pictures, all of those sacrifices pointed to the coming sacrifice who is Jesus Christ. The word propitiation there, that's a big word, but it's a rich word. It is a word that means he is our satisfaction. Jesus was the sinless Savior. That's the one huge difference between you and I as men and women and Jesus as a man. The one huge difference is that he, in fact, was sinless. And as a result, he could die as our substitute. He was not dying for his own sins. He was dying for ours. And therefore, he satisfied not only the penalty that we owed, but he satisfied the wrath of God on behalf of us. That is, he satisfied the wrath of God for sins. And as a result, the writer of Hebrews says that he is now our faithful and merciful high priest. Faithful in that we don't have to worry that he's going to fulfill his duties. 
If you go back to the Old Testament, there were times when the Old Testament priests were not faithful in their duties and in fact came under the judgment of God themselves because they were not fulfilling what they were called to do. This is not the case with Jesus. He is a faithful high priest. He is a merciful high priest, meaning that he can grant us mercy in spite of our sins since that sin debt has been paid. And as a faithful and merciful high priest, he now intercedes for, uh, before God on our behalf. He is our priest who goes to God the Father. Do you hear how significant that is? That Jesus Christ is your advocate. He is on your side. He is interceding before God. And he had to become a man in order to do that. Secondly, this is important because not only is, our, is he our high priest before God, but he is our head leading to righteousness. Now, again, that's, a, that's an awkward way to say that. But we sang a minute ago that Jesus is our head. That is, Adam was our first head leading us into sin. Jesus is now the second Adam. Jesus is now our new head leading us to righteousness. Adam plunged us into sin. Jesus provides us the opportunity to have the righteousness of God. You remember a few weeks ago, we talked about that verse where it said, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And we said, well, that's not really fair. It's not really fair that Adam plunged all of us into sin. But then we said the second half of the verse is equally not fair. And the second half of the verse says, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The second Adam grants us the opportunity to be righteous before God. Now that doesn't mean that we will not sin. We all know that painfully to be true. We will continue to sin. But even as we were plunged into sin by Adam, so we are graciously and mercifully given the righteousness of Christ. That's the great exchange that took place at Calvary. He who knew no sin took our sins upon himself that we might become the righteousness of God. You know that righteousness is necessary to stand before God. And your righteousness and mine would never be sufficient. So we needed the righteousness of another. Theologians call that an alien righteousness. That is a righteousness that is outside of us. And that righteousness is the righteousness of Christ. He became a man and lived a sinless night, life so that his righteousness could be credited to your account. So that he could take your sins and in that place give you his righteousness. So he is our head leading to righteousness. What a tremendous gift and blessing that is. And thirdly, we see the humanity of Christ is necessary because he is our helper in temptation. Because he became a man and faced temptation even as we do, he is now our helper as we fight temptation. Now, as we think about the temptation of Christ, your mind probably immediately goes to that 40 days of temptation that he experienced in the wilderness, where he combated the temptations of the enemy with the word of God. And certainly that is the case. But it's not just confined to that. Jesus was a man who faced temptation all of his life, even as we do, and yet he did so without sin. And because of that now, he is our helper so that we can face temptation 
as well. I'm sure you've made the comment before or at least heard a friend do it. That temptation was just too great. There was nothing I could do about it. I gave in because the temptation was too great. And I well remember as a young Christian making that very statement. And a friend of mine immediately challenged me on that with the verse from Corinthians that said, there is no temptation but such as is common to man. That is, your temptation is not unique. We've all faced it. And that verse goes on to say, but God will always make a way of escape in in whatever temptation we face. And we have a helper in the midst of our temptation. He understands what you are going through. He knows the struggles that you are dealing with because he faced it. He is not some distant God who does not understand what you are dealing with. He became a man and endured temptation so that he can help you through it. And his humanity tells us that he knows. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have a part to play. It doesn't mean that we don't have to be strong or we don't have to be smart or we don't have to make common sense or biblical decisions. We still have to fight. We still have to struggle. We still have to make good decisions. But we have a tremendous helper through it all. The question is, are we going to turn to him and rely on him during our times of temptation, or are we not? Now, I know you still have your Bibles open because I asked you to. So I want you to turn maybe a page. I don't even have to turn a page in my text to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. We've already talked about him being our high priest. But we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, one big distinction, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we might have confidence or so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Verse 15 is very Uh, very similar to what we've already been looking at in chapter 2. But look at verse 16. So then, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. And when we do, we will find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. We can come to the throne of God. Jesus is our high priest interceding on our behalf. And therefore, we can come to the throne of God, not timidly, not reservedly, but with confidence, he says, because Jesus's humanity tells us that he is our helper in time of temptation. We can draw near to God with confidence, not guilt, not despair, but with confidence in the name and power of Jesus. Do you see how practical theology is? The fact that Jesus became a man is not just a a theological lesson. It gives us the confidence to come boldly to the throne of God and know that we will find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. So we've talked about the humanity of Jesus. Let's talk secondly about the deity of Jesus. And to do that, let's go to John's gospel. The prologue to John's gospel, these great verses that John begins his text with. John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now drop down to verse 14. 
In verse 14, we read, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, what does John mean when he uses the word word? He's clearly referring to Jesus. We know that's the case from verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what we talked about last week in the virgin birth. There is absolutely no ambiguity here that John is talking about Jesus being the word. And he says very clearly in verses 1 and 2 that the word that is Jesus is God. There is not a doubt of what John is saying here. He is claiming that Jesus Christ, the man that we just talked about, is not just a man, but he is also God. He is not just a good teacher. He is not just a great example. He is the God-man, truly man and truly God. Once again, this is so prevalent in the New Testament that it is hard to miss. And if you do miss it, you're simply not being honest. Now, I'm not saying that you have to believe it. I want you to believe it. But what I'm saying is that the New Testament is very clear, so much so that you cannot deny that the New Testament claims that Jesus Christ is indeed God. Where do we see that? Well, number one, we see it in the names of God, meaning that the names of God are attributed to not only God the Father, but they are attributed to Jesus as well. Verse 1 of our text makes this very plain. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and He is God. There are at least seven passages in the New Testament where Jesus is referred to with the term theos, which is the Greek word for God, which is where we get the word theology, the study of God. At least seven times the word theos, God, is attributed to Jesus. Perhaps one of the most memorable of these occurs with the, with the man we call Doubting Thomas. Isn't it bad that he's gotten that adjective for all of eternity? Doubting Thomas. The reason he got that is because on the first resurrection appearance on a Sunday where Jesus came to all of the disciples, Thomas was not there. We don't know where he was. We don't know why he wasn't there, but he wasn't there. And the other disciples came to him and told him what had happened. And he said, I will not believe unless I see him myself and touch his scars. So the next Sunday, Jesus appears to them again. This time, Thomas is there. He's not going to miss out a second time. And so the second Sunday, Thomas is there, and Jesus appears again. And Jesus says to Thomas, go ahead, touch my scars. And what does Thomas say in response? He says, my Lord and my God. Now, that's just a couple of examples of the fact that the names of God, the names attributed to God the Father, are also attributed to the life and ministry and person of Jesus. Secondly, we see the deity of Jesus because of the attributes of God. Now, I'm certainly not going to go through every attribute of God, but I do want to give you a few examples. He clearly had the attribute of omnipotence, meaning that he was all-powerful. This is shown in his ability to calm the storm, the winds ceasing. In fact, on that occasion, the disciples said, what manner of man is this? 
I mean, who has the power to calm a storm? And the answer is, the man before you is not just a man, he is also God. His power is seen in his ability to multiply food, to heal the sick, to even raise the dead back to life. He is not only all-powerful, but we also see that he is omniscient, meaning that he knows all things. Now, wait a minute, you say. You've already acknowledged that as a man, he grew in wisdom. That is, he, didn't, he wasn't born with all knowledge as a man. But as God, he was all-knowing. As an adult, the disciples on several occasions said, you know all things. You remember the story of Peter, how he had denied Jesus, and then how Jesus reinstates him, as it were, after his resurrection, with that famous dialogue where three times Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's response is, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Peter understood that Jesus had omniscience. He knew all things. Early on in his ministry, when Nathaniel, right before Nathaniel is called, Jesus looks at him and he says, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Jesus knew Nathaniel before he had ever had a conversation with Nathaniel. And there are many occasions where he knew the thoughts of his disciples, where he knew the thoughts of his opponents, something no ordinary man could do. He has the attribute of eternality, meaning that he has always existed. Again, John makes that very clear in his opening verse. In the beginning, a statement that clearly has parallels to the book of Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God from the very beginning. He is an eternal being. Yes, he was born of the Virgin Mary, but that is not when he came into existence. He has always been in existence, though we call it the incarnation. That is when God took on flesh, or as someone has said, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. That is, remaining what he was, God, he became what he was not, that is man. And therefore, he is truly God and truly man. Not only is he eternal, meaning that he has always existed, but he is immortal, meaning that he always will exist. Yes, he did die physically. In fact, that's what we're going to look at next week as we talk about the death and subsequent resurrection of Jesus. So yes, he did die physically as a man, but he rose the third day, making it very clear that he is God and testifying to that truth beforehand, stating multiple times ahead of time that he was going to die and yet he was going to rise again. We might also say that Jesus was sovereign. And by that, I'm using the term to say that he had the power to forgive sins. Again, on multiple occasions, he forgave the sins of people that he encountered. And on one of those occasions, his opponents said a very true statement, though they had no idea of what they were saying. In that particular dialogue, they said, who can forgive sins but God? And they were right. They just didn't understand that God was in front of them. So Jesus has the attributes of God. He, is, he has the names of God. And thirdly, he has the claims of God, meaning that not only did Jesus himself claim to be God, but those who heard him understood that that's exactly what he was doing. And yet there are still people who say Jesus never claimed to be God. Again, if, that, if that's your testimony this morning, I will say you're simply not being honest with the New Testament. Because it is very clear in the New Testament 
that Jesus claimed for himself deity. This was not something thrust upon him by some over-eager disciples. Jesus himself claimed to be God, and therefore he is not just a great teacher. He is not just a good moral example. He is, in fact, God. We spoke earlier about, earlier as in weeks ago, about the authority that we find in the Word of God. In the Old Testament, we see the recurring phrase, thus says the Lord. In the New Testament, Jesus says, I say unto you. He's claiming divine authority. I say unto you. And then we see he makes statements like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Or I and the Father are one. And on those occasions, they picked up stones to stone him because they knew he was claiming to be God. And therefore, he was blaspheming. And the, and the death sentence uh, was upon those who blasphemed. So clearly they understood what he was saying. And I don't know how the Bible can be any clearer about it. We mentioned last week, I believe it was, that great story in John chapter 8 where Jesus is having that dialogue with the religious leaders. And they're claiming Abraham as their father. And he says, well, you're not acting like it. And then at the very end of that, John, 8, John chapter 8 and verse 58, he makes this statement, before Abraham was, I am. And that is not only claiming eternality, which we've already discussed. But it's taking the very name of God from Exodus and applying it to himself. You remember the story in Exodus where Moses says, well, when I go to Pharaoh, who am I going to tell him has sent me? And God says, tell him I am has sent you. And Jesus in John chapter 8 is taking that name for himself. And again, what did they do as a result? They picked up stones to stone him because they knew exactly that he was claiming to be God. Finally, I will say that he was worshipped as God. Again, in our study of the book of Acts on Wednesday nights, I keep bringing that up because if you're not coming, you ought to be. So in our study of the book of Acts, we saw that uh, the apostles Paul and Barnabas were in the city of Lystra, and uh, they healed a man there. And as a result, the residents of Lystra believed them to be gods, and they began to sacrifice, or they were on the verge of sacrificing on their behalf and bowing down before them. And in horror, Paul and Barnabas said, do not do this. We are men just like you are. Jesus never did that. Jesus never deferred worship. That is, when people said of him that he was God, when people bowed before him, he did not tell them to get up because I'm a mere man. He accepted that worship because he is worthy of worship. He never rebuked anybody for worshiping him because he himself was and is God. If you remember our study of Colossians, there's a phrase there that says it very well in the book of Colossians. It says of Jesus, in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That is, he is a man. It dwells bodily. But the fullness of deity is in him. So we've talked about the humanity of Jesus, and we've talked about the deity of Jesus, that he is truly man and truly God. And you say, well, how can these things be? Well, that's what we want to talk about now, the duality of Jesus. How can he be both God and man? How can he be truly God and truly man? I dare say that most of us believe that Jesus was truly a man. And most of us believe that Jesus is truly God. And yet we are left scratching our heads as to how both of these things could be true. 
It is one of the great theological problems, if we want to call it that, of the Bible. And he, keep in mind, I am not saying you have to truly understand this in order to be saved. When we're talking about this series, Doctrines That Define, and I'm saying these are the things that you need to believe in order to be an orthodox Christian, I am not saying that you have to fully understand how Jesus can be fully God and fully man. But I am saying that you cannot deny that. I am saying that you need to know that Jesus is a man and Jesus is God, but the mystery of how those two things come together can certainly elude us. It is like the divine sovereignty human responsibility debate it is like the issue of the trinity something we will close this series by discussing there are no biblical statements that tell us exactly how the humanity and deity of jesus come together but as we've seen already there are many statements that tell us jesus is truly man and there are many statements that tell us jesus is truly god so what we need to understand is that there are some heresies to avoid. Because this is such a, a dilemma, there have always been heresies in the Christian church as to this debate about who Christ is. And there have always been multiple heresies. Now, I could give you the names of those heresies. I could tell you the people who propagated them. I could tell you where these heresies originated from. Several of them came from ancient Constantinople, which is modern-day Istanbul, which I just like to say because I was there recently. And so I just, it's just a way for me to brag. So a lot of them came out from that city. But I'm not going to name them because it will make me sound smarter than I really am, and you'll just be bored. So what I'm going to do is summarize them. And someone has helpfully summarized for us all of the heresies concerning the duality of Jesus into six basic statements. The first two are these. You can either deny the genuineness or the completeness of the deity of Jesus. You can, die, you can deny the genuineness. He wasn't really God. Or the completeness. He wasn't fully God of Jesus. That's two different heresies. The next two, I think you see where I'm going here. You can deny the completeness or the genuineness of Jesus's humanity. That is, he wasn't really a man, or he wasn't fully a man. That's two more. So that's four different heresies. And then the fifth one is you can divide his person, or you can confuse the nature of Jesus. So there are six basic heresies that have simply been renamed and repackaged through the years. By the way, all of these heresies were evident by the fourth century. And to combat that, there was a major church council in 451 A.D. outside of Constantinople that lasted about a month. And the truth or the result of that council was known as the Chalcedonian Definition or the Chalcedonian Creed. It's called Chalcedonian because it, it occurred in Chalcedon, which again is right outside of Constantinople. It's not too long. You can look it up this afternoon. I was going to print it in the bulletin for you, but it was too long to print in the bulletin. But it's not very long. It's just a paragraph. And in that paragraph, it tells us what the, the natures of Christ are all about. And it has stood the test of time. From 451 to this day, it is still the basic definition of the duality of Jesus Christ. It says that he is truly man and truly God. I've been using that phrase throughout this morning for that reason. 
It says that he was exactly like God and exactly like man, except without sin. That's the only difference, and that is a major difference. So rather than fall prey to any of these heresies, we need to make sure that we humbly accept the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man, truly God and truly man. Now, when I say humbly accept, I do not mean that we shouldn't think about this. I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't wrestle with this paradox. But ultimately, we must accept what Scripture makes very clear, that Jesus is fully man and fully God. And even if we don't understand how these two things come together, we need to believe it. One of the commentators that I was reading said that this is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible. Now, if I, would have, if I would have asked you before I made that statement, if I would have asked you, what is the greatest miracle in the Bible? You would have probably said, well, it's surely the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Or you would have said it's the creation out of nothing. I dare say none of you would have said. It is the fact that Jesus can be fully God and fully man. But this author said, it is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible, more so than creation or the resurrection. Because infinite God has come to be finite man. What a profound mystery. What a profound miracle. So let me return to where I began. That encounter with Peter, where Jesus said, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they give him various answers. But then Jesus says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter gives that great declaration. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's looking at a man and he says, you are God. But I'm not so concerned about what Peter said. I'm concerned about what you might say. What is your answer? Who do you say that Jesus is? Well, C.S. Lewis famously gave us the only options that are available to us. Number one, Jesus is a liar. He claimed to be God, and if he is not, then he is a liar. There is no room for him to be a great teacher. There is no room for him to be a moral example. If he is not God as he claimed, he is a liar. Number two, Jesus is a lunatic. That is, he claimed to be God, and he was deceived. He was schizophrenic. He was crazy because he claimed to be God. And if he's not, and he believed it, then he's a lunatic. So he's either a liar, a lunatic, or thirdly, he is Lord. That is, he claimed to be God, and if he in fact is, then he must be Lord. Those are your only three options. Which one will you choose? Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for the time we've had this morning to study about your son, Jesus, who came to this earth as a man, and yet he was God, is God. And while we can't fully understand that, I pray we believe it. I pray that we believe the humanity of Jesus and the deity of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.